welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 273? Yes, 273. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you're all doing well this fine, well, hopefully fine day for you. When you're listening to this, it's a rainy, dreary day as I'm recording which seems appropriate because, frankly, I am playing impaired today. Not a, not a good kind of impaired. I am about 36 hours out from getting my second COVID shot, and it, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, sucks donkey balls. The first 18 hours, I uh, cruised right through. No problem. And I thought, yes, I'm going to be one of those superhumans, because I am, uh, who sails through the second dose just fine. And then just about at the 18-hour mark, I got super tired, and every muscle in my body started to hurt. And now, that was about 18 hours. Now I'm about 36 hours in, and I am still really sore and really tired. But I am putting on a game face for this episode, for this recording, because I have a schedule to keep. And you, and I just love you people so much, because, you know, the show must go on. Somebody said that once. I don't know who. I read that it was a popular phrase in 19th century circuses, um, which seemed appropriate for this podcast. So the show is going on. If I pass out during the recording, I assume Henry will wander in, uh, shove me aside, and uh, you know finish the show. So we'll see what happens. A little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, a tease, a little bit of surprise for you uh, to keep listening to see if I uh, make it through the whole thing. The other reason that uh, today sucks donkey balls, because yesterday I had to put down the longest running member of my little family, Sneezer, uh, our 18-year-old cat. We've had the cat longer than we've had kids. She kind of reached the end of the road, and uh, we had to let her go. So that kind of sucks. But uh, moving on. If nothing else, at least my CX-40 joysticks will be safe now. Sneezer had a penchant for chewing on them. To the point that I had to hide them. She wouldn't mess with the game. She wouldn't mess with the console or the wires or anything. But something about the uh, joysticks drove her to chew. So I guess uh, at least they'll be okay now. Um, so there's that. Silver linings and all that. I got some feedback from Jason Schiffman, Patreon supporter. Man of many opinions about Atari. He wrote, Thanks Bill for another great episode of Atari Bites. You're welcome Jason. This particular episode, I believe he's referring to the Tempest episode, uh, was sort of an oddity because it centered around a prototype and a miserable one, but I might suggest a new concept. Homebrew Redemption. I'm intrigued, Jason. Tell me more. This involves a disastrous title that is basically a gruesome mess in examining the valiant effort of a modern programmer to bring it back its lost to bring back its lost glory. The evolution of Atari Bytes from simple homestyle podcast to the Joe Rogan of video games beckons you in the distance. Eh, not sure about that, Jason. Further, you dismissed my Tron Deadly Disc. I don't know if I read that response, uh, that comment on the podcast or not. Uh, he had suggested that I play Tron Deadly Discs, which I'm not opposed to, but I think I have that on the schedule. Again, I haven't looked at the schedule lately, but I think it's on the schedule for my Intellivision month, uh, which he has thoughts about. Further, you dismissed my Tron Deadly Disc and suggested it would be at home during Intellivision Month because it's a Mattel product. However, this is not logical since it's a 20, uh, Atari 2600 game. Yes, a port of, Intelli of an Intellivision title, 
but still deserved to be placed in the Atari sessions, not in television. Further, you did Coleco's Donkey Kong. I did. And this was a port of the ColecoVision. I asked Donald Trump, and he agreed. Uh, well, Jason, at one point you did promise to always mention Donald Trump, uh, so good for you. Not really. Oh, come on. I thought you were serious. But mentioning Trump is sort of like my gimmick on the show. So savor the mention. The mention. I know it made your day. Uh, it really did, Jason. Especially this weekend, which isn't going so great. Further, the Hyperkin Retron 77 is not part of the Atari 2600 Legend, so it is worthy of multiple mentions, especially as the capacitors of the original Atari burn away. The Retron is the heir apparent of the legacy, since emulators are for fake nostalgic gamers. Finally, my Iron Man chair is now a playable character on the show. Of an oddity, he, he was correcting himself. Of an oddity, I didn't see my typo. Um... Uh, I'm not sure where that was, Jason, but thank you for correcting that. People couldn't tell. I'm reading this in real time right now. I had not actually read the whole comment until this moment. Thanks for the comments, as always, Jason. Uh, I don't intend to to become the Joe Rogan of Atari games. I, you seem to have gotten this impression that I'm like this uh, Atari hater. Maybe that's too strong. Maybe that's not what you're saying, but uh, I'm really not. I, I'm really not even, don't consider myself to be an Atari reviewer. I just play the games because they're interesting to me, and I have a certain nostalgia for them, but I haven't spent the last 40 years digging deep into them. I played them a lot as a kid, didn't do anything with them for 30 years or more, and then got them out again, and have been playing them on the podcast. So I, I'm not a, uh, I'm not looking to find bad things about them, which I think maybe is what you're anticipating. Nice plug again for the Retron 77. I have heard from many people about how great this is, and I'm not opposed. I may check it out at some point, because you're right. Um, you know, capacitors wear out. Eventually, it's going to become harder and harder to find um, the consoles. Um, I have a console that's, like, everybody's console is really old, and it's going to die eventually. I have a backup one as well that I haven't plugged in in a few years. I, I don't even know if it works anymore. And at some point, because of all the... Uh, all the gamers out there, the cost of replacing this stuff is going to be prohibitive. I don't have the skills, frankly, to repair them myself. And even if I did, equipment at some point becomes unrepairable. So I'm open to the Retron 77. I'm open to whatever that new thing Atari is putting out. Atari in quotes, because I know it's not Atari, original Atari. I don't plan to get one right now, but maybe someday. That's a possibility, I guess, if it's a decent unit. The Tron Deadly Discs thing. I, frankly, don't have an opinion one way or the other, whether I should play this on Atari or in television or both, which I have done with a few games. Murder Time, I think, I did on both, for example. Uh, for the record, I, I prefer the Intellivision. Uh, I, I may at some point do them both. Maybe I could do a back-to-back -back thing. One week uh, in television, one week Atari for uh, Tron. That's a possibility. Don't hold me to it, but because uh, most likely once I'm done with this uh, episode, I'll forget about it. So uh, I don't know. We'll see. Like I said, I'm not even positive that it's on the schedule for June's television month, but it certainly could be at some point. I'm not necessarily saving it for that. Frankly, I probably had the game. I, I think I have the cartridge for the Intellivision, and that's why I decided to put it in, in television month, not because of any sort of preference. So uh, that's the state of that. If you like, you can ask Trump what he thinks about that. Alright, uh, keep the comments coming, Jason, and all of you. And that is it for feedback 
for this episode. I saw an article earlier as I was scrolling, as I want to do. This was from a, a website called Tweak Town. Not Twerk Town, that'd be a whole different thing. Is that still a thing? Twerking? Anyway, maybe I don't want to know. Tweaktown.com. Headline, Atari's creating its old, its own Mario Maker for old school 1970s retro games. Subheading, Atari creating its very own Mario Maker-like tool set for old school 1970s retro games for its new VCS console platform. Atari VCS owners will soon be able to make their own classic old school arcade games and share them with other players. Okay, I get it. Tell me what this is. The company's making a bunch of new games, including titles with, quote, meaningful single-player campaigns, close quote. Uh, one part of the strategy takes a play from Nintendo's playbook. The idea of this Mario Maker tool thing is to let users generate organic, platform-wide engagement. It all sounds like a bunch of words that don't mean anything to me. Uh, with interesting and fun old-school mini-games. It's like creating your own 2600 game during the industry's golden heyday and being able to share them with friends or other random users. Details are light on how this will work. Ah, oh, damn it. But the news was confirmed in a recent press release. This ought to be good. Quote, The VCS community has shown an ingenuity and creativity in adapting the system. I guess he's, they're talking about home brewers there. And Atari will work to support this by releasing tools that will allow creators the ability to design their own classic Atari games, beginning with the 2600, with an eventual goal of making it easier to create, share, and play retro gaming content in the modern era. Doesn't the fact that there's a huge homebrew market sort of show that people have this already? The Atari VCS already comes with 100 classic Atari 2600 games. This is from the article, not the press release. Built right into the system and is now available for pre-order retailers. Uh, yeah, that was pretty light on actual information. Like I said, I think the fact there's a huge homebrew market proves that people already know how to do this and they don't need to buy whatever this uh, tool, Mario Maker tool thing, from you is. They already know how. So this sounds kind of silly to me, like a cash grab. Atari, which I, I don't fault them for necessarily, but I can't imagine it being a huge seller because, again, people already know how to make Atari games. Not to mention that we've got some of the uh, more legendary Atari makers from back in the day making new games, like Circus Convoy. So, uh, I don't know. This sounds like news that's not really news to me. But if you guys check out this, uh, if you're checking out the new console, I guess I'm curious to hear about that. Like I said, I have no particular plans to go and get one. But I'm not saying I never would. But let me know what you think. Let me know if you have any interest at all in this Mario Maker thing. Which doesn't sound like... I originally assumed, perhaps sort of naively, that it would just be a way to make Mario. And make little Mario games. But evidently it's not just Mario, it's all sorts of games. Uh, so, I don't know. Maybe it's fun. As you can tell, I, I don't sound all that impressed. However, from the... Department of Things That Impress But Terrify Me, we have another article about Elon Musk. This was on TechRepublic.com. Elon Musk's Neuralink has this monkey playing Pong like an Atari Pro. The program uses implanted brain chips, I'm already scared, to deliver seemingly telekinetic powers, and the company hopes to eventually use these capabilities to assist people who are paralyzed, or, you know, take over the world. Elon Musk has a company called Neuralink, focused on using implanted brain chips to one day assist disabled and paralyzed people. That is a laudable goal. Last year, an early demo illustrated these capabilities using pigs and spiking snout boobs to much fanfare, and a new Neuralink video shows an implant-enhanced monkey playing Pong with only its mind. The narrator explains that the star of the show is a nine-year-old macaque, macaque 
named Pager, who had, quote, a Neuralink placed on each side of his brain about six weeks ago. Pager puts in his mouth a small metal tube while manually operating the joystick to control the video game shown on the monitor. Quote, he's learned to interact with the computer for a tasty banana smoothie, delivered through a straw, the narrator said, referencing the material being delivered through the metal tube beneath the monitor. So somehow these implants record activity using more than 2,000 electrodes. Uh, the neurons in this, this region modulate the activity with intended hand movement. And using all these sensors and whatnot, and a, quote, decoder algorithm, a team is able to predict the monkey's intended hand movements in real time. By predicting Pager's intended joystick movement, the team is consequently able to predict the monkey's gameplay. Everything in this article scares me. Has anyone checked on Elon Musk lately? He just kind of seems to be out there doing stuff, and we're all kind of like, well, that's weird. And then we move on. But this is like Lex Luthor type stuff. So... Uh, and maybe we should check on him. Some sort of intervention or something. Also, I play Atari games every week, and I don't get a banana smoothie. So, uh, what's up with that? Wow. Well, as we tiptoe quietly away from that, doing as most of society does, being frightened of Elon Musk for a couple of minutes and then forgetting about him, let's move on to this week's game. This week's game is Bermuda Triangle from Data Age, 1982. Deep Sea Survival Basics In a mysterious body of water near the Atlantic sea coast, known as the Bermuda Triangle, an unusual number of planes and ships have vanished under very bizarre circumstances. To this day, the Bermuda Triangle remains an unsolved mystery. Or is it? Yes, yes it is. In your mini-sub, you discover a spectacular city at the bottom of the ocean. Its machinery still churns, yet there are no signs of intelligent life. Suddenly, you spot several odd-looking artifacts. Could they hold the key to the Bermuda Triangle mystery? Maybe. But one thing is certain. They must be extremely valuable. But watch out. From out of nowhere, deadly laser beams rip past your vessel. Survive them and you will still have to face giant squid, man-eating sharks, explosive mines, and aquatic drones, all determined to prevent you from removing these treasures. Deep Sea Expedition Objectives. You must guide your mini-sub to the mysterious underwater city and collect as many priceless artifacts as you can, then deliver them to your research ship waiting on the surface before your mini-subs are destroyed. Your research sub is counting on you to deliver the valuable treasures from the bottom of the ocean. Your research ship, I should say. An advanced one-man submarine equipped with a special energy pod, which can release a powerful tractor beam on command. With this tractor beam, you can capture the undersea treasures. That is the thing that you're controlling. There are valuable artifacts like the Tachyon Modulator Unit, which appears to be some form of communication device, yet this time is only a guess. They may be found at several locations within the underwater city. The water dissociation module. These are also scattered about the city, and were apparently used at one time to separate water into hydrogen and oxygen, oxygen gas. The gas is in turn most likely directed to fuel cells to generate electricity. The Corbinian cube. Although these strange objects can be found throughout the city, the purpose is still a mystery. I like how they put all this thought into what these different shapes are, even though it doesn't come into play in the game at all. All you're doing is picking them up and taking them up to your research vessel. But I appreciate the effort. Objects to avoid. Giant squid. These creatures thrive in the warm waters above the city. Contact them and you will be temporarily immobilized and you will lose the valuables you have just collected. Man-eating shark. Contact with a shark will also result in temporary immobilization and loss of valuable cargo. Aquatic drones, remote-controlled, saucer-shaped objects that patrol the underwater city. To save your cargo, you must also avoid these objects. Explosive mines, armed with sensitive contact fuses. These devices must be avoided at all cost. Contact one of these. They keep saying contact this, contact that. Uh, 
it feels weird. They should be saying, come in con into contact with them. Anyway, contact one of these and your mini-soap will be vaporized. The Bermuda Bomb. Oh, man. I remember a night in 2003 when I was out having a, with, the, with the gang having Bermuda Bombs. Oh, man. I should say I don't remember it. Anyway. This device can only be found within the city. Its purpose is unknown, but don't try to pick it up. It is equipped with an anti-tamper fuse that will trigger an explosion if, dis if disturbed. Enemy ships. On the surface is an unidentified enemy ship that will steal your cargo and destroy your mini-sub if you get too close. My money is on that uh, evil archaeologist from Raiders of the Lost Ark, whose name I can't remember right now. How to plan your Bermuda Triangle expedition. Basically, put the game in the console. Using the joystick for this. Plug it into the left receptacle of your game console. For two players, use both joystick controllers. Player one uses the left, player two uses the right. I believe you're alternating. Game one is a single player. Laser beams come into play after 10,000 points. Game two, two players. Laser beam come into play after 10,000 points. Game three, single player. Laser beam comes into play at the beginning of the game. Game four, laser beam comes into play at the beginning of the game. Two player. Select the difficulty level for one or two players by positioning the left difficulty switch to B for beginner, A for advanced. The right difficulty switch has no effect. You press the reset switch, press the red fire button to start the game. When a player loses a mini sub, his turn is over. To launch a second mini sub, press the red fire button. If there are two players, player two must press the red fire control button on his joystick controller to start his turn. Once player two's turn is over, player one, etc., etc. Use joystick to propel your mini sub through the treacherous waters 50 points every time you knock out a killer shark giant squid or aquatic drone each time you destroy an explosive mine you score 200 points you get a special bonus of 600 points each time you collect an artifact from the underwater city and deliver it to your research vessel to accomplish this you must first take your mini sub to the maximum depth as far as it will descend on your tv screen attempting to descend further not sure how you would do that but all right will release a powerful tractor beam shown as a column of light from the mini subs oh okay Attempting to descend further is how you get the tractor beam to ignite. At the same time, you hear a deep bass tone. You must use the tractor beam to collect the valuable artifacts. A rapid series of tones will let you know the cargo is in your possession. Then you have to deliver it back up to the research vessel on the surface, hit any obstacle on the way, and you not only lose your cargo, but also 100 points will be deducted from your score. If you make the delivery, the research ship will blink twice, indicating that it has received the cargo. However, you will receive the 600 points only after the research ship safely crosses the screen. For each 10,000 points you have scored, you gain an additional mini-sub. The maximum number of mini-subs a player may have at any given time is 3. Since the obstacles in Bermuda Triangle can attach from both directions, you should avoid the extreme left or right edges of the screen. This gives you more time to respond. In games 1 or 2, when you reach a score of 10,000 points, an intrusion detection system will activate and the underwater city will become ablaze with multicolored lights. Uh, the little bit that I played today, I did not get here, so I can't verify any of this. At the same time, the city's laser defense system will turn on and an occasional laser beam will vaporize one of the ships that wait on the surface. If you happen to be in the laser's path, you will also be destroyed. That's kind of cool. To reduce your chances of getting hit by the laser, you should avoid being directly below any of the surface ships. All data-age video games carry a limited one-year warranty. I, I guess I'm past that. Oh well. Look for other data age video games, wherever video game cartridges are sold. If you can't find games in our area, drop us a line. We'll send you a list of stores near you. I think I'll try that. They got an address here in Campbell, California for data age. See what happens. And then they give us a little history. The Bermuda Triangle is a section of the Atlantic Ocean bounded by imaginary lines connecting Bermuda to the southern tip of Florida to Puerto Rico, then back to Bermuda. 
On December 5, 1945, an entire training team of 14 airmen and 5 TBM Navy Avenger bombers departing on a training mission from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, vanished after reporting that their instruments had all, quote, gone crazy. A rescue plane with a crew of 13 was dispatched immediately. It also vanished. On February 2, 1963, a 425-foot freighter disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle without a message or a trace of debris. In this mysterious region, more than 100 other planes and ships have vanished. This was as of, what, 82 when this uh, game was put out. I don't know how many have vanished since then. Always without a trace of wreckage or survivors. Because of the strange circumstances and the unusually high number of such occurrences, the Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle has also been referenced, referred to as the Devil's Triangle, the Triangle of Death, the Sea of Lost Ships, and the Graveyard of the Atlantic. To date, the Bermuda Triangle mystery has not been solved, although many investigations have attempted to link it with UFOs, space-time warps, black holes, and other dimensions. There you go. That is how you play Bermuda Triangle from day to age. I'm not rich or famous. I'm not a movie star, rock icon, first responder, nurse, doctor, or anybody else whom we all look up to. I'm just a schnook. Just like Bill, I love to tell stories. Unlike Bill, though, I'm not creative enough to write my own, so I just tell my own real-life stories in this book-read-by-the-author-style podcast, all about life lessons growing up, and every episode, a segment about music. Music that I love, artists that I admire, and sometimes even my own music. You can find Autobiography of a Schnook on all your favorite podcast suppliers, or you can go to schnookpodcast.com. That's S-C-H-N-O-O-K podcast.com. And I firmly believe the good goes around, and I sincerely hope that Autobiography of a Schnook proves to be some good that goes around your way. 8-Bit Central observes that the mystery and intrigue of the triangle almost begs for a video game of this sort. But then, where are all the Sasquatch and Yeti games? They observe that you're piloting a submarine, you're underwater, it's hard not to liken it to Defender and start blasting squids and sharks, you even get to pluck treasures from the ocean floor and bring them to the ship on the surface, which is close enough to rescuing humanoids that you might be finding yourself calling Bermuda Triangle a Defender clone. Oh, that reminds me. In the field report, I look at one of the ships that's trying to get you, and I say that it's the ship, that I wonder what the ship from some game is doing here, and I realized later that I'm thinking of the sort of the saucers from uh, Turmoil, and other games probably. Uh, Anyway, back to 8-Bit Central. A quick jiggle of the joystick reveals that while you do have the ability to move anywhere on the screen, you lack the defenderish trick of instantly flipping direction and shooting or travel toward the left. Darn. But on the bright side, the graphics are really good, the submarine is well is well defined, and the various enemies look great. Even the ocean floor has a nice feel to it. To get a little little summary of what the uh, Bermuda Triangle is, Final Judgment, Data Age's Bermuda Triangle offers a fairly manic amount of fast-paced gameplay. You have to stay alert and play smart. The laser beam is random and can take you out without warning, but that's what the Bermuda Triangle is all about. Danger. This is a fun game with good graphics and sound. We dig it even though it kind of makes us want to surface, dry off, and fire up Defender. Atari HQ... Says, for a change of pace, the game takes us below the surface of the ocean into a world as unfamiliar yet as intriguing as the outer reaches of space. On a multi-banded screen, players of Bermuda Triangle are put through their usual paces, but the scenery and challenges have taken on another dimension altogether. It's a pretty good Defender clone, although it doesn't emulate the Williams Smash hit as much as others do. For one thing, you can't change directions go in the opposite direction. 
It's a forced forward environment, at least as far as left-right movement is concerned. Hazards, however, naturally come at your sub from all directions. This is a well-done game, sure to become a favorite among some players. Graphics are clearly delineated and realistic. The submarine itself is, com is comprised of at least four colors. The objects, enemies, and backgrounds are also crisp and detailed in the area, and there is a lot to look out for all the time the action is taking place. Sound effects are good, but it must be extremely difficult to emulate to simulate realistic underwater noises. Not a bad effort, and downright surprising that it came from Data Age, a company famous for its, its ineptitude. We dig it even though it kind of makes us want to surface, dry off, and fire up Defender. According to Wikipedia, the Bermuda Triangle itself, also known as the Devil's Triangle, is a loosely defined region in the western part of the North Atlantic Ocean. The vicinity is amongst the most heavily traveled shipping lanes in the world, with ships frequently crossing through it for ports in the Americas, Europe, and the Caribbean islands. Cruise ships and pleasure craft regularly sail through the region, and commercial and private aircraft routinely fly over it. Popular culture has attributed various dis disappearances to the paranormal or activity by extraterrestrial beings. Document realized later that I th I'm thinking of the inaccurately reported or embellished by later authors. The earliest suggestion of unusual disappearances in the Bermuda area appeared in a September 17, 1950 article published in the Miami Herald Associated Press by Edward Van Winkle Jones. Two years later, Fate magazine published Sea Mystery at Our Back Door, a short article by George Sand covering the loss of several planes and ships, including the loss of Flight 19, a group of five U.S. Navy Grumman TBM Avenger torpedo bombers on a training mission. Sands' article was the first to lay out the now familiar triangular area where the lo losses took place, as well as the first to suggest a supernatural element to the Flight 19 incident. Flight 19 alone would be covered again in the April 62 issue of American Legion magazine. Author Alan Eckert wrote that the flight leader had been heard saying, quote, We are entering white water. Nothing seems right. We don't know where we are. The water is green, not white. He also wrote that officials of the Navy Board of Inquiry stated that the planes, quote, flew off to Mars. In 64, Vincent Dadis wrote an article called The Deadly Bermuda Triangle in the pulp magazine Argosy, saying Flight 19 and other disappearances were part of a pattern of strange events in the region. Next year, Gaddis expanded this article into a book, Invisible Horizons. Other writers have elaborated on this, uh, all keeping to some of the same supernatural elements outlined by Eckert. There are critics, obviously. Larry Cushy, author of The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved, 1975, argued that many claims of Gaddis and subsequent writers were exaggerated, dubious, or unverifiable. Cushy's research revealed a number of inaccuracies and inconsistencies between Berlitz's accounts and statements from eyewitnesses, participants, and other involved in the incidents. Cushy noted cases where pertinent information went unreported, such as the disappearance of round-the-world yachtsman Donald Crowhurst, which Berlitz had presented as a mystery, despite clear evidence to the contrary. Another example was the ore carrier recounted by Berlitz as lost without trace three days out of an Atlantic port when it had been lost three days out of a port with the same name in the Pacific Ocean. Cushy also argued that a large percentage of the incidents that sparked allegations of the Triangle's mysterious influence actually occurred well outside it. Often his research was simple. He would review period newspapers of the dates of reported incidents and find reports on possibly relevant events like unusual weather that were never mentioned in the disappearance stories. Cushy concluded the number of ships and aircraft reported missing in the area was not significantly greater, proportionally speaking, than in any other part of the ocean. In an area frequented by tropical cyclones, the number of disappearances that did occur were, for the most part, neither disproportionate, unlikely, nor mysterious. Furthermore, Berlitz and other writers would often fail to mention such storms, or even represent the disappearances having happened in calm conditions when meteorological records clearly contradict this. 
The numbers themselves have been exaggerated by sloppy research. A boat's disappearance, for example, would be reported, but its eventual, if belated, return may not have been. Some disappearances had, in fact, never happened. One plane crash was said to have taken place in 37 off Daytona Beach, Florida, in front of hundreds of witnesses, a check of the local papers revealed nothing. The legend of the Bermuda Triangle is a manufactured mystery perpetuated by writers who either purposely or unknowingly made use of misconceptions, faulty reasoning, and sensationalism. In a 2013 study, the Worldwide Fund for Nature identified the world's 10 most dangerous waters for shipping, but the Bermuda Triangle was not among them. History.com has a piece on its website basically saying what I just said, that although Myriad fanciful theories have been proposed regarding the Bermuda Triangle. None of them prove the mysterious disappearances occur more frequently there than in other well-traveled sections of the ocean. In fact, people navigate the area every day without incident. The area covers about 500,000 square miles of ocean off the uh, southeastern tip of Florida. When Christopher Columbus sailed through this area on his first voyage to the New World, he reported that a great flame of fire, probably a meteor, crashed into the sea one night and that a strange light uh, appeared in the distance a few weeks later. He also wrote about erratic compass readings, perhaps because at that time, a sliver of the Bermuda Triangle is one of the few places on Earth where true north and magnetic north lined up. Here's an interesting tie-in to last week's episode, Tempest, that I wasn't expecting. William Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, which some scholars claim was based on a real-life Bermuda shipwreck, may have enhanced the area's aura of mystery. Nonetheless, reports of unexplained disappearances did not really capture the public's attention until the 20th century. I didn't plan this, uh, these episodes back-to-back, but uh, I'm just that good, I guess, that I can unintentionally create, um, what's the word? Synergy. That's not the word. Um, between episodes of this... Basically making the point that although there were disappearances, no one really paid attention to how weird they were or started to think they were weird until the 20th century. An especially infamous tragedy occurred in March of 1918 when the USS Cyclops, a 542-foot-long Navy cargo ship with over 300 men and 10,000 tons of manganese ore, sank somewhere between Barbados and the Chesapeake Bay. The Cyclops never sent on an SOS distress call, despite being equipped to do so, and an extensive search found no wreckage. Quote, only God and the sea know what happened to the great ship, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson later said. In 1841, two of the Cyclops' sister ships similarly vanished without a trace along nearly the same route. A pattern allegedly began forming which vessels traversing the Bermuda Triangle would either disappear or be found abandoned. In December 45, five Navy bombers, I think we talked about this one already, uh, with the 14 men took off from Fort Lauderdale and disappeared. With his compass apparently malfunctioning, the leader of the mission, known as Flight 19, got severely lost. All five planes flew aimlessly until they ran low on fuel and were forced to ditch at sea. That same day, a, re- a rescue plane and its 13-man crew also disappeared. After a massive weeks-long search failed to turn up any evidence, the official Navy report declared that it was as if they had flown to Mars. Then they quote the various counter-theories that we talked about, by just making the point that no one, you know, there is not consensus on this, apparently. NationalOceanService.noaa.gov says that environmental considerations could explain many, if not most, of the disappearances. The majority of Atlantic tropical storms and hurricanes passed through the Bermuda Triangle, and in the days prior to improved weather forecasting, these dangerous storms claimed many ships. Also, the Gulf Stream can cause rapid, sometimes violent, changes in weather. Additionally, the large number of islands in the Caribbean Sea create many areas of shallow water that can be treacherous to ship navigation. And there is some evidence to suggest that the Bermuda Triangle is a place where a, quote, magnetic, 
compass sometimes points toward true north as opposed to magnetic north. The U.S. Navy and U.S. Coast Guard contend that there are no supernatural explanations for disasters at sea. Their experience suggests that the combined forces of nature and human fallibility outdo even the most incredulous science fiction. They add that no official maps exist that delineate the boundaries of the Bermuda Triangle. The U.S. Board of Geographic Names does not recognize the Bermuda Triangle as an official name and does not maintain an official file on the area. So the Bermuda Triangle is not an official thing. But you know what is an official thing? Bermuda shorts. Bermuda, Bermuda. 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 Bermuda shorts. Say, baby. Bermuda shorts, also known as walk shorts or dress shorts, are a particular type of short trousers worn as semi-casual attire by both men and women. The hem, which can be cuffed or uncuffed, is around one inch above the knee. They are so named because of their popularity in Bermuda, a British overseas territory where they are considered appropriate business attire for men when made of suit-like material and worn with knee-length socks, a dress shirt, tie, and blazer. I'm so going to try and get away with wearing Bermuda shorts to work now. I wish I could, probably, because most everything I do is on Zoom, either from the office or at home, so who's going to know the difference? True Bermuda shorts are not to be confused with capri pants extending below the knee. Cargo shorts may be a similar length, but are typically baggy or less tailored than Bermuda shorts and are more typical of West Coast American fashion. Bermuda shorts have grown in such popularity that many businesses now offer them with one such business, Tabs Bermuda, free shout out to Tabs of Bermuda, I guess, creating fashion-forward versions for both men and women. Many of their designs also feature local artists who have designed fabric and patterns for the waistband, pocket linings, and more minimalistic parts of the Bermuda shorts. The invention of the shorts is attributed to native Bermudan and tea shop owners Nathaniel Coxon, who in 1914 hemmed the uniform pants of his employees, allowing for more comfort in the heat. The British Army, stationed in Bermuda during World War I, adopted the shorts to wear for wear in tropical and desert climates. Bermuda shorts became a popular sportswear item in the 20s and 30s for their association with leisure and tropical vacations. Their name was likely codified in the United States by the Bermuda Shop, a New York City sportswear retailer. So there you go. The rest, I guess, is history. If anyone's wearing Bermuda shorts right now, let me know. If you're wearing anything else, don't let me know. Especially if you're not wearing anything. I really don't want to know that. Alright, well, after the break, prepare to be Bermuda shorted. Sailing, sailing over the bounding main. That's how it goes, right? It's a sea shanty. Sea shanties are cool now. I heard. I hear among the uh, among the young people, you uh, you millennials or you gen- what are they? Generation Z now, with your beards and your your craft beers, which I do like, not the beard so much, and your sea shanties. You think you're all cool? Well, I have Atari games, so I'm way cooler than you. <laughs> we'll just leave that there. Playing uh, Bermuda Triangle today. Uh, it's an ocean adventure, as you can see. It's already making noise. That's cool. Let's uh, start the game. It moves very fast. 
so it's going to be hard to talk and play. Please do not judge my uh, score with that in mind. So here we go. I picked up an artifact. Going ah, stupid squid. Get out of my way. Die, squid. Ah, I touched the skeleton thing. I think apparently that's bad. All right, gotta get up to the research sub. Not the red one. The red boats are bad. I like the look of the game. Everything looks like undersea, but video game stuff. I'm not quite sure what that spaceship from uh, that one game I can't think of right now is doing there, but okay. Oh, the game's over. When the game ends, it still makes noise and everything, and you can shoot. Can't move. That tells you the game is over. I'm going to try this one more time. Here we go. Honest, I have been able to pick up artifacts, uh, just not, unfortunately, during the field report. Ah. That was cool. I just kind of nudged the ship. Holy sharks, Batman. Apparently, I touched a thing you're not supposed to touch. Trying, but ships keep coming. There we go. <laughs> Quiet, cameraman. So shoot the ships. Just do it, stupid daddy. Ah. Wow, that was an epic explosion. Sorry I died, but that was pretty cool. Alright. Yes. I, I keep touching those skeleton things, even though I know it's bad. Don't touch the skeletons, kids. Oh, game's over. Um, you get the idea, I guess. I'll talk more about it in the episode. Uh, until then, go wax your beards. Back to you in the studio. Hey, everyone. This is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. Do you like Atari? Of course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? It was one of the best. Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games, which are mostly released only in the UK. But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that and for free just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's X-E-G-S, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail, because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. Hey, let's take a break from you listening to me talk so that you can listen to me talk. Hell Serial, Very Short Stories Fortified with Essential Syllables, is the new short story collection from, well, me. Every box, or book, is chock full of bite-sized stories in every genre from sci-fi to fantasy to literary fiction to cheesy spy stories and everything in between. Zombies in Love, Twisted Car Races, and the aforementioned Devilish Breakfast Food are just some of the tasty bites you'll find. Toy surprises? You bet. How about social commentary and the meaning of life? Pizza Dakota ring any day. With both funny stuff and drama, Hell's Cereal gives you the marshmallows and the toasted oat flakes. Oh, and words. Lots of those, too. 
picked up Hell Serial, very short stories fortified with essential syllables, wherever you like to get your books. Not cereal. So here's the thing about Bermuda Triangle. I like this game a lot. Uh, it's frenetic. It looks really good. Everything looks like what it's supposed to be. The sub, in particular, I think, looks really nice. The, the action moves fast, but I don't think necessarily in an unfair way. It just works really well. It sounds good. I think the one article I read said that it would be hard to recreate ocean sounds, which is true. I don't have a problem with the sounds that they do use. It's all good. I kind of want to go back and play some more, which is the sign of a good game. So, well done. It doesn't strike me as, if I have any complaints, it doesn't strike me as pr particularly Bermuda Triangle-ish. I know you're picking up these weird artifacts, but it doesn't feel all that, you know, you expect a Bermuda Triangle game to be sort of a sci-fi kind of game. It doesn't really feel like that to me. You're just a sub picking up stuff on the uh, ocean floor. I mean, I guess there are drones or little spaceships or whatever among the uh, enemies trying to stop you, but they're not really trying to stop you. Uh, they're just sort of there, getting in your way. Mostly it's squids and sharks and things, typical ocean stuff, not really space aliens or anything, which is, again, what I would expect in a Bermuda Triangle game. But it's not enough to make me not like the game. I just feel like you could call it anything, ocean adventure or whatever, and it would still be just as good of a game. But that's my only complaint, and it's not really even a complaint. As always, if you guys have thoughts about this game, or the Bermuda Triangle, or ships, or whatever, reach out to me in one of the various ways that you can do that. It's story time on Atari Bites. Yes, it's story, 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 story time with Bill. This week's story is titled, Bermuda Shorted. With a tremendous roar of tearing steel, the ship's hull sliced through the gate and came to rest near the observation deck. Fitzhume was observing all right, and what he observed was bad, very bad. Oh, the merciless gods, he muttered generically, as he could never quite remember which ones were in charge of all this. He reluctantly reached for his phone. Watch Commander Cormandy, however, saved him a call as she burst into the room, sputtering coffee from her ears. What the devil's triangle happened? She shouted. She shouted. Well, Fitzhume started, gesturing toward the massive ship parked on what was now the newly christened promenade. The promenade, fortunately, was empty, today being recycle your lung day for the local citizenry. The gate to the outside is supposed to be closed, Cormandy said, towering over the diminutive Fitzhume. It is, it was, Fitzhume said. That thing opened it. Oi, a voice called from the ship. Is this St. George's Port? This was Nick Briggerton, captain of the British fader Rumplemix. He huffed into his luxurious mustaches. Such elaborate facial hair deserved to be referred to in the plural. Cormandy thoughtfully stroked the locket hanging from her neck, then put on her best face. Good sir, she began. You are at the port to end all ports. Right, Briggerton said. So that makes sense, then. You're not really here, Fitzhume offered feebly, by way of clarification. Although it wasn't. I'm not, Bridgerton said. In a manner of speaking, Cormandy said, shooting her colleague a look. Fitzhume wasn't sure, but he may have peed a little bit. Where am I? Bridgerton asked. Here and not here, Fitzhume said, having decided to commit to the confusion strategy. Cormandy decided to move this along, 
Sir, where were you before this? She gestured around. Western part of the North Atlantic, bound for Bermuda, Bridgerton said. Got to deliver these candied beets, don't I? Well, sir, allow me to welcome you to an exotic isle far beyond the mundane enticements of Bermuda. You stand on the threshold of the ancient island of Atlantis, home to science and art, beauty the likes of which you've never seen. Bridgerton looked around the dingy seaport. Whatever passed for a promenade was now covered with a ship. A rusted-out sub was moored to the east. Fitzhume Fart Fanboy was spray-painted on the side of it. On the other side of the dock, a pile of fish slowly rotted away near a humongous dinosaur carcass? Bridgerton nodded. Atlantis, eh? Well, it's a bit rubbish then, isn't it? I told you, Fitzhume said to Cormody, suddenly finding his voice. I said the gateway was a bad idea. Thick warrior boots tromped across the deck as the Atlantean security forces arrived. Each of the three soldiers wore sparkling tunics and had long flowing locks spilling out from under their glistening helmets, long spears at the ready. Come on, you guys, called out Wendy, newly transferred to security from accounting. Winded from the run, she finally joined up with her colleagues. Forgot my spear, damn it. That's all right, Wendy, the captain of the guard, Platonus, said. I don't think our guest will cause any trouble. He turned his icy glare to Briggerton. Will you, sir? A pot to piss in and a sandwich are all I need, Briggerton said. Then a couple blokes to push this old tub back out to the shipping lanes. Yes, Platonus said, about that last bit. Platonus turned to his security detail. Seize him, he shouted. With the agility of people who spend their lives eating only the freshest natural foods and sculpting their bodies, the security forces, except for Wendy, scaled the side of the ship and bundled Briggerton off. He noted ruefully none of his crewmates had come to his defense. This would not go down well at review time, if he wasn't dead. Briggerton was ushered wordlessly through deep catacombs. They were within the intestines of the great beast Atlantis, and Briggerton was the poop. As they walked, Briggerton occasionally caught glimpses of the outside world of the Bermuda Triangle. Flashes of dark storms gave way to lush vistas of exotic colorful flowers, which themselves gave way to massive ancient stone monoliths carved in the shapes of the gods. A great stone door slid open before them with an echoing thud. Briggerton was shoved roughly into a cavernous empty chamber. Where's the lion then? he asked. As if on cue, six figures emerged from a hidden door, three men and three women, all in golden robes with long locks like the security forces. Four of them held thick law books. Two held lattes. Mr. Briggerton, the old woman in the center said as the six took their seats, high upon a dais. You stand accused of infiltrating the triangle. Bollocks, Captain Briggerton said. I don't know how the devil I got here. The six lawgivers muttered amongst themselves. Briggerton was pretty sure he heard, he heard one of them say, no, we bought out the devil's share. You did not arrive voluntarily, said one of the men, a gruff older man who sounded a bit like the Jimmy Hoffa reenactor from the show Bridgerton watched on the ship's Wi-Fi last night. I was on a run to Bermuda to drop my load. Candied beets have a surprisingly short shelf life. I just stumbled upon your blasted triangle. Not like you signposted it, you know. I'm a bit knackered, to tell you the truth. The old woman muttered to the long-nosed woman next to her. Write that in the scrolls. Mr. Briggerton, the old woman said. Captain, Briggerton corrected. Well, you're on land now, the old woman said, trailing off without completing the thought. Look, can I go now, Captain Briggerton said. I'm sorry about your gate. I'm sure my company will pay the damage. We don't want your money, the old woman said. We use Bitcoin, the long-nosed woman added. The bearded man on the end of the row snickered. Captain Briggerton, we cannot let you leave, the old woman said. She whispered something to the previously unnoticed bald man standing behind her, and he slipped away. Turning back to Briggerton, the old woman said, It is time to impose the penalty. Briggerton's alarm bells went off, or maybe it was his tinnitus. 
Either way, this wasn't good. Oi, hold on a damn minute, he said. You can't keep me here. Another door appeared in the wall to the east. The bald man returned, along with three black-robed men and Fitzhume, hoping his pit stains weren't obvious. The three robed men formed a half-circle around Briggerton as he tried to step backward toward the door he came in. And now the penalty, the old woman said. Bastards, Briggerton said. You can bet the Prime Minister will hear about this. The old woman turned to Fitzhume. Mr. Fitzhume, she said, you failed yet again to properly post the entrance to Atlantis. This has been the lost city of Atlantis for far too long. You are hereby demoted, demoted back to extraterrestrial rectal exams. Yes! Fitzium shouted and skipped excitedly from the room. As for you, Captain Briggerton, the old woman said. Hold on, I don't want no part of any space aliens, Briggerton said as the three robed figures moved closer. So, Captain Briggerton, the old woman said, you didn't recognize the triangle. Well, how about this? In unison, the three robed figures reached under their cloaks. Briggerton braced for the end. The three figures pulled from their cloaks and, and unfurled long parchment scrolls. Each had scrawled upon it a different geometric figure. Parallelogram, trapezoid, and circle. Get this man a chair, the old woman said, abruptly hospitable. Suddenly, a wind-backed chair appeared. The bald man gently lowered Briggerton into it. A cup of Earl Grey was, pla was placed in his hand. We've been considering rebranding, Captain Briggerton, the old woman said. Would you be more enticed to visit Bermuda Circle, Bermuda Trapezoid, or Bermuda Parallelogram? We believe any one of these would be easier for vessels like yours to wander into. We're really just wondering what would be most attractive to unsuspecting travelers as, as the world as they know it disappears around them. The stoic bald man turned to look at Briggerton. Gotta make it rain tourist bucks, yo, he said before resuming his granite demeanor. And that's how Captain Nick Briggerton found a new career as outreach coordinator for the Bermuda shape to be named later. Fitzhume, meanwhile, has developed many new techniques in the art of alien, um, exploration. And so the Bermuda Triangle remains a mystery, which is just as well. Hi, this is 8-Bit Rocket Jeff Fulton from the Into the Vertical Blank Growing Up Atari podcast. You're listening to the incomparable Bill and his wonderful stories, gameplay sessions, and just plain fun that he has with his Atari and sometimes in television systems here on the Atari Bytes podcast. We cover all things Atari from the 2600 through all the video game systems, computers, and more. Our first game system was the 2600, and we loved it. We still do. So when you want more Atari, come visit us in the vertical blank. And that's our show. Thanks to Kevin McLeod and Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, Pinball Spring. Thanks to Sean Courtney for the storytime theme. Thanks to the Delroys for the use of their song, Bermuda Shorts. Hey, you know what's not a mysterious dead zone populated with space aliens and sea monsters? Apple Podcasts. Probably. Go there to leave a five-star review of this show. Email the show at AtariBytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at AtariBytes. Or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Also, check us out on Instagram. You can also call us. I'm not going to answer the phone. It's nothing personal. But you can leave a voicemail. 563-265-1978. Leave a message about pretty much any damn thing you want. And I'll probably play it on the show. Check out the website, www.carnivalofgleecreations.com. You're going to find their information, show notes, episodes for this podcast, Atari Bytes, and my other show, the monthly deep dive into the Peanuts comic strip called 
It's a podcast, Charlie Brown. You can also find information there about books that I've written, including Hell Serial, very short stories fortified with essential syllables, and links to just a few of the places you can order them. You should also consider supporting the show financially, helping to uh, keep the lights on in the podcast studio, by going over to the Atari Bytes page on patreon.com and signing up. Depending on what level you donate at, you could get stuff. For example, you could get access to the episodes early. You could also get bonus content, including the uh, really terrible videos of the field report that I put up there every week. Occasionally I put up other, uh, put up other stuff uh, as things occur to me and I have time to do them. And you can access all of that if you're a Patreon supporter. Thank you in advance. Thank you in the present to current patrons. Michael Tyler, Jose Gazeta, Sean Courtney, M. West, Jim Goble, Patrick McCarthy, Jeremy L., and Jason Schiffman. All right, we are just about out of here. All that's left is to tell you next time on Atari Bytes. We're playing the generically named Laser Gates. I'm going to assume, well, I'm going to guess, but I'm not going to assume because this is Atari, but I'm going to guess the game involves lasers and gates. Could be an actual physical gate, perhaps to you know keep your poodle in the yard. Could be a person named Gates. Uh, who knows? But we're going to find out next week. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.